If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, I heard several of you, uh, probably five or six of you, sent me a text last week and uh, thanked me for Dave Douglas who was here. And uh, he's a neat guy from Hattiesburg, Mississippi area. And uh, he is redoing, probably some of you heard, probably the church plant over on Winton Road at the old Browncroft Baptist Church building. And uh, so their service is normally Sundays at 4 o'clock during his church plant uh, starting stages. But at uh, any rate, he uh, said that he enjoyed being here and that y'all responded well to him. So thank you for uh, being gracious to him as I was away. The God we can know. You know, as I read the first verse in this next text of Scripture, so many thoughts came to my mind. Uh, Today we're going to look at verses 16 through 23, but the first verse, verse 16 alone, displays a very strong impression and one not easily dismissed. And uh, before we get started, I want to go ahead and read through that passage, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 23, and then we'll start breaking it down here a little bit. It says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to, want to know what, shall, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were, were, who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. As we look at this text of Scripture, next week we're going to actually go back to verse 22 and go further again, but we're going to look at verse 22 and 23 a little bit today. Um, But this very first verse in this text, verse 16, has a very strong impression impression that you can't just easily dismiss. And the key word that I want you to notice right away in the beginning is the word provoked. Now, typically when you hear the word provoke, it's not usually a positive connotation. When we say that someone is provoking us, we usually look at that as something as being negative, something that's irritating us, something, something that has taken place that does not make us uh, too happy, happy so, so to speak. Um, in fact, in God's Word, it says we're to provoke one another, but we're to provoke them to what? Love and good works, right? That's usually not how we see this played out with this word. But in the Greek language, it carries two main ideas. And the first idea is that of being stirred. Uh, The second idea is that of being angered or irritated. Uh, In other words, what Paul observed irritated him, angered him, and stirred him to action. Now think about that. If it has two main ideas, that being stirred and angered, and then to bring him to a place of action, uh, 
truly, verse 16 of this text becomes a motivation for his actions that follow. And here's a thought. If what we see and observe in the world around us doesn't anger us, irritate us, or stir us to some form of action, one has to wonder why. See, if something that we see that is not right, if something we see is wrong, it's unbiblical, it's like not what God would have for us, and it doesn't bother us, why does it not bother us? You ever thought about that? Either you've joined it or it no longer bothers you, your conscience is seared, it doesn't you know, bother you anymore. I remember years ago, uh, Dan Quell. How many of you are old enough to remember Dan Quell? I loved Dan Quell. Dan Quell was a good man. Uh, but he dared speak up against a sitcom that would actually be pretty mild today. There's a sitcom on TV called Murphy Brown. Anybody remember that? All right, some of you older ones know that. But Murphy Brown was just kind of a sitcom, and he said something that was against the sitcom Murphy Brown, and people crucified him. It was something to do with people living together before they were married. And all of a sudden, he's all of a sudden too conservative to be a president. You realize that his run for the president was the first political race that he had ever lost. He had won victory after victory after victory until he dared take a stand against something in culture that was wrong. It irritated you know. But here's the point. What used to bother people no longer bothers them. What used to make Christians blush no longer makes Christians blush. You used to hear an off-color joke and say, oh, I, I, mm, mm. and now people just laugh at it and walk away. It's like, oh, that's just who they are. We don't seem to be bothered by things that are sinful and against God's principles. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing here. If it doesn't bother us, we have to ask the question, why? And so as we see right here in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, you remember in the previous passage that we looked at two weeks ago in verse 15, it says, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command of Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul is sitting there waiting for Silas to come meet him and join him. And as he's there, he's looking around and just noticing everything that has taken place. And his spirit was provoked In other words, it was stirred. It was irritating him. It angered him to the point that he could not just sit still. And you notice what provoked Paul. He saw that the city of Athens was given over to idols. You say, okay, that's that day and age. That's where they were at. But let's jump forward to 2023. What is an idol? What is an idol? Anything that we give more time or attention than we do God has a potential of being an idol in our life. Let me say that again. Anything that we give more time and attention to than God has the potential of being an idol in your life. It could be wealth or material goods. For a lot of people, it's all about, life is all about getting that, you know, nest egg this so I can make it to retirement and then I'll be comfortable once I get there and I just I'll just keep going until I figure like I have enough and then you know that becomes their idol because they just have to keep going and going and going and going because I haven't learned to put my trust in God yet so therefore I'm going to keep doing what I can do to make sure that that stage of my life is taken care of it becomes their idol for some people It could be our devotion to our own health and well-being. How many people do we know that live to go to the gym every day? 
I mean, that's me. I'm, I'm sorry. Just kidding. Um, but there are so many people, they live to make sure that they look good in the presence of others, right? I mean, they won't eat certain foods because deep inside that's going to might gain an ounce. You know, they got to go to the gym, make sure that they're shredded, make sure that they're there every day, make sure that they're, you know, lifting certain amounts of weights. And that's their idol. Their, their imitation, their self-worth, and their, their self-esteem, that's what they live for. Other people, it's a position. They live for that position. And when they got that position, and they get to make the decisions, and everybody looks to them for the answer, that's what gives them joy and satisfaction. It has become their idol. And for a lot of us, you say, well, I don't have money or wealth. I don't have position. Maybe I have no place of power. But for some of you, your idol is your opinion. You ever thought about that? There's a lot of things that we give up as we grow older. I remember when I was first married. My brother will remember this. We used to detail our cars. We used to get the Q-tips out and go in the, in the, uh, you know, in the vent registers and make sure it was just spotless and armor all it and put tire shine on. I mean, that was an every week ordeal when we were younger. I can't tell you the last time I even cleaned my truck out. It's nasty right now. I'm just saying. But the older we get, we don't really care about what kind of car we drive as long as it's dependable, gets us from point A to point B. We don't care about the house that we live in and, you know, when you first get there versus, you know, 20 years later, everything's old, the furniture is scratched, it's not as nice as it once was, and you really don't care anymore. But the one thing you know is that we don't give up, with the one thing we don't relinquish as we get older, our opinions. Because they mean so much to us. They're mine. And I don't care if you disagree. I don't care if you don't like it. It's my idol. And I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to give in to what you think. Because it's mine. If we're not careful, we can be just like the city of Athens. Think about it. When Paul looked at it, his heart was stirred. His spirit within him was stirred because he looked around and says, everybody is given to idols. Now, we may not say it's the exact same idol, but in our day and age, we have idols in our life. Amen? We have things that are getting more time and attention than God is. For some of you, it's your TV. For some of you, it's your free time. For some of you, it's your wallet. But for whatever it is, God gets second place. He gets a slice of the pie, but not, not the pie. So he saw the city of Athens given over to idols. Notice how Paul responded. We see in verse 17 what his response was. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So he reasoned with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. And he went to the marketplace daily to talk with whoever was there. Now remember, a couple weeks ago we looked at that word uh, discourse. We looked at that word dialogue. Is the idea that when he was talking, he was not beating them over the head. My wife reminded me numerous times over the years when it came to circumstances with our kids. Do you want to be right or do you want a relationship? Right? I want both. <laughs> I want to be right and have the relationship. But sometimes we need to choose our battles. But there are times that we can beat somebody over the head because we know we're right. And we are right. No question about it. But how you present that material, how you present that truth can either build a bridge or build a barrier. Right? 
Paul did not go into the synagogues of the Jews. And remember, we've seen this for the last four chapters. Every town he went into, he went into the Jewish synagogues. And what did he find? Opposition. But what you find there is that he did not beat them over the head with what, was, what the truth was. Literally in the Greek, it literally means to have a dialogue. He had a conversation. Let me teach you something that will help you win a lot of difficult circumstances. Something I learned in Bible college from one of my professors. Questions probe the conscience. Accusations harden the will. When you ask a question, it probes the conscience. When you make an accusation, what happens? My defenses go up and I become angry. Questions probe the conscience. Accusations harden the will. Paul went in and asked questions. Paul went in and had a conversation. Did he have the truth? Absolutely. Did he back down from it? Never. But he didn't beat him over the head with it. He simply had a conversation. That's what that word means in the Greek language. So he reasoned with the Jews. And he went in there daily. You know, think about this. What Paul did on a daily basis was simply share his faith. When's the last time? I I just want you to be honest. We talked about this a lot over the last several weeks. When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? Be honest. You and God know the answer, so you can't lie about it, at least not to God. But when's the last time you did that in any context? Paul, according to verse 17, went into the marketplace daily. Now let me ask you a question. Did he need to go buy stuff every day in the marketplace? I mean, is he just that unorganized that he couldn't get a week's supply? How many of you go get a week's supply when you go to the grocery store? Most of you, right? How many of you have cupboards full? Raise your hand. How many of you have pantries, freezers, packed, right? There may be a couple of you that go day to day, you know, because, you know, you just don't feel like you have anything else to do. It wasn't that Paul needed something from the marketplace every day. He went to the marketplace for a purpose. So let me give you the principle. If you don't plan to share your faith, you won't do it. It's just that simple. If we're not looking for opportunities, you won't do it. Paul went daily with the purpose of whoever was there, whoever he ran into, that's who he was going to talk to. So what I'm saying is we need to go into our daily routines with the idea that whoever we run into, whoever God puts in our presence, we should be willing to have a conversation with them. Are we willing to do that? So he went in there. What does 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 remind us of? It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, God says, it's not the job of the preacher. It's not the job of the deacon. It's not the job of the Sunday school teacher. It's our job, if we know Jesus Christ, to be able to give an answer of the hope that we have, right? If you have the hope, you should be willing to have the ability to share with somebody that hope that you have. But here's also a true point. You can't give what you haven't got. Right? Think about that. I could say, hey, I'm a multimillionaire. If you need help, come to me. I'll, I'll help you. Problem is, <laughs> I'm a multimillionaire. I'm not even a thousandaire or a hundredaire. You know? So I, I don't have the ability to give you tons of thousands of dollars because I don't have them. But the same is true with my faith. If I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you won't share one with anyone else. 
So you need to make sure you have that relationship. You need to make sure that you know Jesus as your Savior. How did the people respond? You know, let me ask you a question. Is everyone going to respond with, oh, I'm so glad you told me about Jesus? Is that how everyone responds? I mean, it'd be nice, but it's not reality, is it? Um, as we see often, is that the more he shared his faith, the more he, more he pointed out the gospel, the more angry people around them got. Look at verse 18. So it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now you have to remember something about Athens. I mean, Plato was there, Aristotle was there, Socrates was there. They were all students of each other, and of, underneath each other. It was a philosophical town where people would sit around and talk about stuff of life. It's where all the communication of just day-to-day babbling took place. And all of a sudden, here's Paul coming into the synagogues and talking about Jesus, and they looked at him as a ba- being a babbler. So he was accused of proclaiming of false gods, so to speak. So what, you read through this sometimes, and you say, well, what were the Epicureans? Or who were the Epicureans, and who were the Stoics, and what, what did they believe? Well, I'm glad you asked. So I'm, let me give you a couple things about the Epicureans. So the Epicureans, uh, they taught that pleasure and the avoidance of pain were the chief end of man. How many would like that? I'm, let's be honest. Oh, some of you are lying. You don't like pleasure? Anybody? Nobody? I like pleasure. I like things that make me happy and joyful, and some of you can't even tell the truth in church. I'm telling you. If you can't tell it here, you can't tell it nowhere. But they taught that pleasure and the avoidance of pain. I, I, man, I would love to be an Epicurean from that perspective. I don't like pain, and I love pleasure. How many are with me? Thank you for telling you the truth. So they were materialists who, while not denying the existence of gods, they believed that they did not intervene in the affairs of man. So gods were out there. We have all kinds of gods, even maybe the God, but they don't intervene into the affairs of mankind. They just kind of are out there. They don't bother me. We don't bother them. They're just kind of there. So they didn't intervene. So they taught that at death, the body and the soul, which were both made of atoms, they believed, just disintegrated. There is no afterlife, so get the best bang for the buck now. Live life to the fullest. Enjoy anything that brings you joy and satisfaction and pleasure and gets you away from pain, and you got it all set. It's all for this life. They were existentialists that believed that uh, truth came by the means of experience, not through reasoning and, tr- and uh, other extracurricular sources. Pleasure was the main goal. Question, is that really much different than what we see in our world today? They may not know it, but the world that we live in are really a bunch of Epicureans. That's exactly what they are. I live for the pleasure of self, and the avoidance of struggle and pain. That's what this world is all about. It's all about number one, right? So that's who these Epicureans were. Then there were the Stoics. They saw self-mastery as the greatest virtue. i got to work on myself to get the best version of me. Is that really that much different than what we see today? I want the best version of me. Right? So... Self-mastery comes from being indifferent to both pleasure and pain, but reaching the place where one feels nothing. 
I'm not swayed by this. I'm not swayed by that. This doesn't have impact on me. I'm simply working on me to be the best version of me. Those were the Stoics. They believed that Christ was one with us and in all of us by virtue of creation, not redemption. Christ was born in us, so therefore we just have him no matter what. Of course, that's not true, but isn't that really what a lot of the world believes? That, well, we got Christ. I believe in Jesus. But God's Word tells us that even the devils believe and tremble. So it's not enough just to believe that. But of course, it's not true because they believe that they were born with him, not necessarily gain them through redemption. So they were unmoved by inner feelings or emotional circumstances. They were just working on becoming a better person. Not much different than the world we live in. And so Paul is going into the marketplace and facing the same people that we would face today in our world. It's your next door neighbor. It's your coworker. It's your relatives. It's those around you that are looking for the best version of themselves, avoiding pain and struggle, and enjoying the good life. Not much different than what we see today. So he was accused, even though both of these groups had major flaws, he was accused of proclaiming a false god. And who and what was Paul talking about that was so false? Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You see, we live in a world that says we love diversity as long as you agree with me. Right? That's... That's what the world says. We, we're all about diversity. We're all about wanting people to look to us and follow us and you know, be, you know, to like us and enjoy us. But, but as soon as you have a differing opinion, well, all of a sudden you're, you're a hater. Not much different than what Paul was facing. He was accused of proclaiming of false gods. But who and what was Paul talking about? Simply the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection. So he was then brought to the Areopagus to explain this new doctrine of which he was speaking and the strange things he was uh, speaking to their ears, according to verses 19 and 20. It says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Talk about an open door of opportunity, Right? I mean, here Paul is given the premier opportunity to just simply break it down what it is that he's talking about. Second Peter, or 1 Peter 3.15, giving an answer of the hope that lies within you. You know what the easiest way is to share your faith? I've said it a thousand times. Simply telling someone else what God has done for you. That's it. Simply telling someone else what Jesus has done for you. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. You see, what Paul was experiencing isn't any different than what we ex- we'd experience today if we were doing what Paul was doing. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of deeming, demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So people began to believe what they want to believe because that's what makes them feel good, right? I actually had someone tell me a couple years ago, well, my God would never ask me to hate father and mother. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. But what is he saying here? Love me more. Well, how often do we love the things of this world more than we love the things of God? Right? 
let's be honest. I'll admit it. There's too many things in this world that have my attention. Too many things that I am incredibly enticed by because I want it. And you find out eventually that what you want really doesn't bring satisfaction, does it? I mean, think about it. How many of you ever got a new car in your life? At least a new-to-you car? Raise your hand. Didn't you think it was really cool when you first got it? I mean, think about it. Cars today versus cars even 20 years ago? Think about it. I mean, they're much more comfortable. I mean, who ever has seen the day that a truck would drive like a Cadillac? I remember riding in my dad's 1969 Chevy. It was a box truck and boom, 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 driving down the road. Man, my truck is smooth. We like it. But what happens a month after you get it? Just a thing. And that's everything in life. At first, it's so awesome. It's so great. We tell everybody about it. We're proud of it. And that's just a thing after a little while. And we don't even think twice about it. We get in it, we go to the grocery store, come back, and we don't even think twice about that cool car we have. All the bells and whistles mean nothing after the second time you drive it. It's exactly what Paul was facing. Something new. He was accused of proclaiming of false gods. But in the last time, their conscience were seared. I like what Johnny Hunt said when he was talking about this. He says, when you divorce yourself from truth, you open yourself up to error. We know what truth is, but when we choose to ignore it, we open the door wide open for error. And sometimes we don't even realize it. Sometimes we just say, I don't want to deal with that. That's convicting. That's hard. That means sacrifice. That means self says no. But this, saying yes to God, that's hard. Second Peter 2, verses 1-3 through three says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. But covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Second Peter 2, 1-3. Isn't that the world we live in? People who have been bought with the blood of Jesus. Who are those people? People who should know better. People who should know the truth and yet reject and put their hand in the face of God, denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. They open the door for destruction by choosing to reject the God who bought them. Jude 3 and 4 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our, of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Jude 3 and 4. The reality is, there will be those who should know what's right. They're challenged to contend, and yet they reject. 
And Paul goes in here and he says, listen, this, he, Paul understood this is the world he lived in. Let's look at verse 21. It says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. It doesn't really matter what. It doesn't matter whether it's really right or wrong, whether it's truth or error. If it's new, let's have a discussion about it. So Paul comes in there and has a dialogue about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They spent their time in nothing. Just idle waste of time and babble. Hey, what's going on? Hey, you see so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, you're just wasting time. And then you see in verse 22, 23, Paul's response to all that was taking place. He says, listen. <laughs> Think about this. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Question. Isn't that kind of the mindset of most of the world we live in? They think they're religious. But religion doesn't allow anyone to enter into heaven. Being Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, Church of God, Church of Christ, Wesleyan, Nazarene, it don't matter. You can claim whatever denomination, religion that you want, it will not get you to heaven. And the world that we live in is very religious. But unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you'll not go to heaven. So he declared that they were, in fact, a very religious people. In fact, you're so religious. He even reminded them of the altar that was dedicated to the unknown God. Just in case we might have missed one. Some might have thought. And you'll find out next week as we get into the next passage of Scripture. He says, God who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He says, therefore, the one whom you have worshipped without knowing, him I proclaim. He's, Paul's about to unleash on them the gospel. But they're religious. And what I want to think, close with this morning is this. What do you do in response to what you see in the world that we live in? How do you respond to it? Someone said that there's a difference between empathy and compassion. If you see a need and do nothing about it, you're empathetic toward them. But if you also see a need and do something, you're compassionate. There are a lot of people who are empathetic without being compassionate. You see the world around us and you say, well, it's terrible. Oh, it's, it's rotten. It's bad to the bone. It's just evil to the core. It's, and you think of a million different adjectives that describe the world that we live in. You see all the hatefulness. You see the deceitfulness. You see the wickedness. You see the murders and the crimes. You see all these things, and it bothers you. But not enough to do something about it. Jesus didn't rent out the Colosseum to have a revival meeting. He didn't, he didn't say, hey guys, we're in Athens. This is where the lions get let out to destroy the animals or, or destroy Christians. He didn't rent the Colosseums to preach the gospel. You know what he did? One-on-one. -on -one. He only invested into a handful of people. Who's your sphere of influence that God wants you to impact? Who are your relatives, your neighbors, your friends and loved ones? You see, you'll reach them 
far quicker and better than I can. You'll reach your neighbors more than you can reach their neighbors because they're yours. But who is the sphere of influence that God wants you to impact? What are you doing to change the course of life for someone who's destined for hell? When Paul walked in, he said, this place is wholly given to idols. They're lost. That's the world we live in. He had to deal with the philosophers of the day who believed that it was all about self-pleasure and the avoidance of pain, working on a better version of me. That's the world we live in. Paul had to deal with those in the marketplace who were just wasting their time babbling about whatever's going on in the news. That's the world we live in. But Paul's response to everything was that he was going to do something about it. He didn't just feel bad about it. He did something about it. He proclaimed Jesus. And going into the marketplace was not coincidental. It was intentional. So when we make up our minds that we need to go where the people are and be willing to give an answer to the hope that we have, God will use that. In the last couple of weeks, I've had like six opportunities. It's been great. It's kind of neat. I love it when God gives me those opportunities. I wish I could say they're, you know, they, they got saved and they're here. I am not called to control the outcome. I'm called to be obedient. And God gives me an opportunity, I'll plant the seed. Maybe next time I'll water. But God will give that increase, right? But to do nothing is what? Sin. Can't walk away and say, wow, what a great testimony that Paul shared with us and do nothing about it. So just for a moment this morning, as I did a few weeks ago, let's just talk about that for a minute. 